Greetings from Down Under. Hey, we're in Melbourne. We're about to do our final show. If you're listening to this and it's either Wednesday or Thursday, the show is sold out online. We've, we're going to release a couple of tickets on the door. There's going to be a few tickets left on the door, maybe 10, 15. We don't know exactly how many chairs we've got left, but there will be a standby list. So if you're in Melbourne, you don't have tickets yet for the show with Will Anderson, come down, 7 p.m., European Beer Cafe. We'll hopefully squeeze you in. And if not, if you're in Portland, we're going to be there as part of the Listen Up Portland Podcast Festival this coming weekend on Sunday, February 17th. We'll be performing at the Commune at 5 p.m. You can go to listenupportland.com for tickets. And it's a great podcast with um, tons of your favorites like Bullseye with Jesse Thorne, The Sporkful, Doughboys, past guest of the show, Andrew Tease, Yo, Is This Racist? It's it's going to be a great time and I'm uh, looking forward to seeing a bunch of Portlanders up there and a bunch of uh, Melburnians tomorrow. Yeah, it's, it's going to be fun. I hope you enjoy this episode. This is the first of the live ones that we did on our little tour. This is from Cairns. And thanks again to Inspiring Australia and the Australian Society for Parasitology. I'd like to introduce the stage, uh, Matt Kirsch and Andy Wood, our hosts for tonight. Probably science. Hello, Cairns. Oh, Cairns. What a, what a... Cairns on a Sunday afternoon. Is it Saturday, Saturday I think afternoon? It's Saturday. We are all out of sorts. It's we been a We have little to no idea. We we came in on a flight. Uh, we lost a day, as happens when you fly from America to here. A whole day was stolen from us. We didn't. Thursday didn't exist, as far as we're concerned. So sorry to any friends of mine who had a birthday on Thursday. Better luck next time. You're a year old, younger in my mind. Uh, hey, everyone, thank you for coming out on a Saturday afternoon to yeah. Cairns for, to see us and this podcast. Yeah, why not half applaud? Uh, <laughs> thank you, thank you. I'm Matt, that's Andy. Yes, and this is Probably Science, a weekly podcast in which two comedians with former backgrounds in STEM fields uh, sometimes get some things right about science and other times just make some dick jokes. Yeah, so. this is going to be one of the more sciencey episodes because we've got two real scientists here. So here's how this came about. Here's the reason we're in Cairns at all. Uh, you'll notice the big banner there from the Australian Society for Parasitology. Uh, we don't normally have the word parasite written quite so boldly next to our shows. Although as Los Angeles residents, we are also experts in parasites. Yeah, so we, we are. get how this all works <laughs> we metaphorically. We profit from work for and are parasites. Uh, and also Inspiring Australia as well, uh, which is an organization that involved in science communication and outreach. And between the two of them, they helped us come out here. And uh, thanks also to Michael Smout, who's one of the people you're about to see on yes. the stage shortly. That's the reason we made it. This is my first trip to Australia. I'm very glad to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm under strict instructions from Matt to attempt no form of Aussie accent at yep. any point in this trip under penalty of death so I'll, I'll be hitting all my R's super hard we are in Cairns we're going to Melbourne and I will say good day to people and no shortening of that at any point so yeah we're here in Cairns Dinner Theatre which is has an eclectic selection of shows that happen here I don't know if you've seen the various signs here, but this seems to be where anything that could any, in any way be defined as entertainment happens yes. in Cairns. At some point this afternoon, one of you will be murdered and the rest of you will have to solve it, <laughs> yep. as you might have seen from that signs outside. That is a thing. There are also hypnotists, male strippers. Uh, Upstairs, there's a Fleetwood Mac tribute band tonight. There is a Fleetwood Mac tribute band, and at about. some point tonight, we will be doing all of those things. So <laughs> brace yourselves for full frontal nudity, <laughs> at the end of which you'll have to solve a crime. And that crime will be the full frontal male yeah, nudity. So that very easily solved, in fact. <laughs> very simply, very simply. So we arrived in Cairns. We flew from LA to Sydney, had like a four-hour layover, then flew to Cairns, and then got whisked straight to James Cook University 
to look at. Here's the thing. When, when, you, when you mention Australia to someone who hasn't spent time in Australia, the first thing that comes to anyone's mind is like, oh, it's full of dangerous shit that kills you. And as you as people who live in Australia are like, ah, that's bullshit. That's not something you really have to deal with on the regular. But here it fucking is. I mean, yeah. it really... Turns out it's all true. It really is, and particularly when we went to the... Uh, yeah, as soon as we arrived, we got whisked away to James Cook University, and the first tour we were given, again, after 30 hours straight of travel, it was almost like one of those scenes in a movie like Arrival, where they've gone and found some civilian expert in something, and then just medevac them by helicopter straight to the war room to figure something out, and you're just like, okay, General, here's the map. So, on no sleep, we had to suddenly be thrust into the world of how James Cook University is solving dengue fever by putting this bacteria into mosquitoes, which means they have to raise... Tens, if not hundreds of thousands of mosquitoes. I don't know if you've ever got off almost 24 hours of traveling and then be whisked, then pushed into a room of mosquitoes, but that's <laughs> literally what happened to us. They're like, go into the room of mosquitoes that says this room contains loads of mosquitoes, and then we just sort of hung out there for a bit, and like, even if nothing's biting you in a room of mosquitoes, you start to itch. Like, some of you are yeah. feeling itchy right now just listening to it. Like, this is... got a bite right now. Uh, yeah, and, and then... So that, that was Mick Townsend threw us through, <laughs> uh, took us through there, and then Olivia Rowley and Anna Longlois took us through the uh, aquarium area the where everything aquarium. can kill you. <laughs> Again, like, everything... They're like, oh, that's a snail that kills you in uh, 20 minutes, and that fish kills you in about an hour, and that fish kills you in about, oh, that jellyfish kills you in about what? There was one that kills you, I think, within a day. And then I asked a ranking of the top five worst things that were in this edge aquarium, and the first four, I'm sorry, five through two were, I believe, things that could kill you, but the worst thing was a jellyfish whose name I can't remember. We'll get it later in the, in the episode. We'll put it up. In, yeah, we're, this is going to go out as, on the, the Patreon uh, as, a, as a bonus episode of us recording going around this place. But, yeah, uh, but that, well, that jellyfish doesn't kill you. What's it called again? That's Mer- Olivia right there who actually Mer- took us around. It's so painful that the 48 hours of pain you go through is worse than death. <laughs> and it also induces a sense of impending doom. It's basically a bird box jellyfish. It makes you want to <laughs> kill yourself for 48 hours, and the pain is worse than the death brought about by the other jellyfish. So, so thank you, uh, Cairns and Queensland in general, for inviting us to your beautiful paradise of death. <laughs> it is gorgeous round here and terrifying. Uh, I think we should bring on the first... So here's, here's what we're going to do, because our format's going to be a bit different to normal shows. So we're going to bring on uh, two guests first who have both been uh, part of FameLab, which is a series of three-minute science communication talks where uh, scientists talk about what they're doing in an entertaining and witty way and condensed way, and they're each going to give you a little presentation on their work, and then we're going to chat to them for the rest of the episode. And the winner of the first-ever FameLab Australia is our first guest and also the host, and the reason we are here today. Yeah, the the person who's got us out into Queensland at all. Yes, uh, he works for the Australian Institute of Tropical Health and Medicine. He grew up here in Brisbane. I'm sorry, he grew up in Brisbane, um, and from a young age, always wanted to know how things work. He's a confirmed geek from six years old. Science would always be his passion from that point on. Genetics captured his imagination in high school and university, but it wasn't to be. I'm not sure why that is. After attempting to fly during a cycling accident, his face broke his fall and led to a convoluted series of wonderful events that ended with him loving all things wormy and toxic here at James Cook University in Cairns. His current research interests are how parasitic worms, or how their spit, rather, uh, cause cancer, uh, developing the granulin growth factor into a diabetic wound healing agent, uncovering new anti-parasitic drugs with worm dancing and tropical toxins. Without any further ado, 
On the topic of can we save lives with worm spit, please welcome to the stage our friend, Dr. Michael Smout. Imagine you're in your bathroom. You slip over and slice open your wrist on the kitchen counter. What if you had a magic bandage that could heal that wound? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. Who likes to travel? Who's been overseas and eaten the local cuisine? Are you, like Teddy here, one of the 700,000 Australians who go to Thailand every year and eat their way around the country? Well, if you eat plara, one of the fermented fish dishes, you might come home with an unexpected friend, like Teddy did here. But don't worry, he's got me to the hospital, he's a little unwell, but I'm a doctor, I can help. This is Teddy's liver. And unfortunately, he brought home Larry the liverworm. Now, the ones we catch aren't quite as adorable. They're about half a centimetre long and the shape of a leaf. And you can get hundreds or even thousands of them in your system. Now, for when you're coming back to a country like Australia, all you have to do is take a pill to get rid of them. But if you're in the local region, these fermented fish are your major protein source and you're constantly eating them, constantly getting heavy infected. They can cause damage to your liver, but over the lifetime of infection, they lead to causing liver cancer in one in six of the patients. And that's particularly bad in Thailand as it causes 26,000 deaths every single year. How does the worm cause such cancer? Well, that's where we come in. We work on the worm spit. That is all the secretions, the vomit, the poop, the skin. Worm spit's a nicer way of talking about it. The worm spit has this growth hormone in it that causes your cells to go into overdrive. Now, why is it causing this? Well, we don't know, but we suspect the worm is helping you, trying to kill you with kindness, if you will. It's munching around your liver, causing wounds, and then healing them up with its worm spit, causing wounds, healing with worm spit, and over and over again. Now, if this was only for a few weeks, that'd be fine. But the problem is they live for decades. And over this long, long term, they can cause cell damage and eventually, ta-da, leads to cancer. <laughs> and this is a particular cha challenge to, to fix. So what we're working on, we've found this active growth factor and be able to look, look at it as a potential vaccine. So hopefully, we'll be able to understand this complex worm-host relationship to understand it and create a vaccine to help the Thai farmers. But what does this mean for the rest of us without the worm? Well, we've found a component of this growth factor that we can make synthetically in the lab, cleanly and safely, and it can supercharge wound healing. It's not going to give you instant healing powers like Wolverine, but it might be able to supercharge that wound healing. Now, that's useful for you and me, but the people who really need it are the sufferers of chronic wounds. And they tend to be smokers, the elderly, and diabetics. And diabetics are really bad off. They can get these chronic wounds in their feet that reach the bone. They take months to heal, if they heal at all. And in fact, one in 10 of these patients require an amputation. Just here in Australia, every single day, we're losing 12 diabetic feet. And this is a real big problem. It costs us $3.5 billion every year. So we're hoping to be able to create some kind of treatment that can supercharge that wound healing. So remember, don't eat raw fish in Thailand. Worm spit causes cancer. And magic bandages that supercharge wound healing may be just around the corner. Thank you. Let's Michael Smout, Michael everyone. Our buddy and our host. Excellent work. Michael's going to come out and join us and chat to us a bit more about his work afterwards, but I'd uh, like to introduce another guest, someone we met for the first time today, and I can't wait to see her talk. She is a doctor in biochemistry from James Cook University, but originally from Chile. She's our first Chilean I believe uh, so. guest first on guest this show. She now lives in Cairns, has her own Latin dance group where she performs typical dances from Latin America, and worked for two years at the local Latin radio program, and also as a volunteer 
wildlife carer in Cairns. Please welcome with her talk, Sunflower Power Where the Sun Doesn't Shine, Dr. Claudia Cobos. Hi. I'm going to move my thing first. Yeah, like very far. Have any of you heard about the peptide saga in an AFL club down in, in Victoria a few years ago? For the ones that don't know what I'm talking about, in 2013, around 40 AFL players were accused of injecting themselves some uh, performance-enhancing peptide. So after this, they gained a very bad reputation in Australia. And with they, I mean AFL players and peptide. So today I came to defend peptides, because not all of them are bad. So now that we are talking about peptides, do you know what peptides are? <laughs> so in simple words, peptides are just small proteins. They are made up of the, the onion of this chain of a small organic molecule called amino acid, and they are present in different uh, type of um, living organisms, helping to different type of biological activities. So we can find them in the skin, we can find them in plants, we can find them in um, snake, in spider venom, in milk, in eggs, for example. So now, I wonder you remember the last time that you got um, food poisoning. Do you remember the symptoms? Maybe something like um, abdominal pain, cramp, constipation, and diarrhea? Very bad, right? Now imagine this, several times stronger, and not eye disconfirmed, street fatigue, joint pain, and even rectal bleeding. Well, this is what someone with inflammatory bowel disease, or IBD, feels every day. Not even a sunflower will cheer you up, would it? IBD is a term for two conditions, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. Ulcerative colitis is an inflammatory disease of the large intestine, and Crohn's disease can attack any part of the digestive tract from the mouth to the rectum, or in other words, from gum to bum. No one knows for sure what causes inflammatory bowel disease, but scientists think that abnormal action on the person's immune system might trigger it. Maybe, probably, you don't know, but peptides have different applications, such as um, antimicrobial, insecticidal, help with chronic pain, in between a few examples, and they are very easy and cheap to create, so they, they are the perfect medicine. So now, a study have shown that a range of peptides have the potential for treatment for IBD. However, small peptides are likely to be unstable due to the small size. So what if we make them stronger and resist them? So in my PhD, I was trying to make them stable so we can use them after. So how can we tough them up? Well, it turns out that nature has done the work for us. There are these small cyclic peptides. They are very, very stable. So what, I, so what we know now that we have a sunflower, and inside the sunflower seeds, there are these very small cyclic peptides. So we can use them. So what I did, I took my unstable peptide that helped people with IBD, and I stuck it into the cyclic peptide, the sunflower seed cyclic peptide, like this, and make it stronger. So what did we found? Well, we're able to do this hybrid peptide. And then we tested in a laboratory um, model of inflammatory bowel disease, and it worked well. So what do we do now? Further study is now required to understand what it does, where it goes, how it works. So then we can go from peptides to medicine. So for people with IBD, time has been dark. However, my peptide can relate to patients with IBD 
by sending sunflower power where the sun doesn't shine. Thank you. Thank you, Claudia Cobos. Thank you. Thank you for the talk. I, th I think we should actually, uh, just inf I I'm going to move, our listeners won't be aware of this, but there's, there's a massive sunflower and a teddy bear and some other stuff on the stage right now. Let's move Thanks, Andy. To the side, sure. So thank you so much. Uh, come on back out again, uh, Claudia Cobos uh, and Michael Smiles, everyone. Cla Claudia and Michael, everyone. Time, fresh from their FameLab performances. Thanks, both of you. Oh, you got your little Madonna headsets as well. I like it. <laughs> yes. yeah. uh, Matt and I are, for the listeners at home, we're on regular microphones. We, we guys have the Time Life operator. I'm not sure if that made it down under. Was, was Time Life books, were those the things, the things you could buy here in the 80s? Vaguely, okay, regional vaguely. jokes from the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> So those are part of, like, like we said, this competition where people have three minutes to explain a, a science concept, and it was started by the British Council and brought to Australia back in 2014. Yep. And you won with that talk back then? Yeah, right? pretty much. Yeah. Nice work. Excellent. And, um, and you've been spending uh, the bulk of your time here in Cairns working on worm spit. Yeah, mostly worm spit. <laughs> That's what pays the bills. Um, we explore with the uh, Venom guys all sorts of bits and pieces, but yeah, mostly that worm spit is uh, what I do day to day. And... I was trying to figure out from that what the exact mechanism, or the reasoning behind why the worm would want to both hurt you and then heal you. Is it just to keep the host alive long enough to keep yeah. you? Yeah, so, so we're not really sure. I mean, there's a couple of options. I gave the if part of the story for the wound healing that it's like uh, heal, uh, if you make a hole in your wall at home, you patch it up. And so it's just keeping its home uh, nice and happy. But we're not really sure. It might even be feeding off the cells, causing extra cells to grow. You don't need to go and graze around if you can make the body grow yourselves. But mm. um, it, uh, yeah, parasites do amazing things, and finding out why is... Uh, well, you can't really ask them, can you? <sighs> so for, for our listeners who are smokers, what parasite should they be swallowing right now? <laughs> I'm not sure about that one, but uh, certainly be careful with chronic wounds because that's a big problem for smokers as well. Yeah, this sort of reminded me of cures I've heard about that sort of seem um, medieval but are pretty effective for like diabetic foot wounds that won't heal, like maggots I've heard have been yeah. used a lot recently. Sorry for, I know it's lunchtime, everybody, but, you know, we're talking parasites here. So is that at all similar, or are they just eating necrotic tissue but not actually helping? Yeah, that's them? mostly what they do. They also have a whole bunch of antibiotics and stuff, that because keep, keeping it clean is really uh, part mm -hmm. of the challenge. Um, but, yeah, so the chronic wounds tend to, rather than a wound like we've cut ourselves, and you've got fresh tissue there and it regrows, these chronic wounds, they'll have a whole bunch of necrotic or dead tissue. That, that, yeah, that's largely what the maggots are doing. They get rid of that dead tissue, exposing fresh tissue, and that allows it to grow. Okay. But the worms don't... Do, the worm spit doesn't just do that. It's more about actually having this agent that promotes growth. Yeah, so we, we've identified this granulin compound, which is the worm spit active ingredient for growth, and uh, we're working on it that way. But, I mean, the worm spit has hundreds of different components in it. They control the immune system. They twist it around. They do all sorts of different things. So it's more this is just one aspect of it, but it's incredibly potent. Yeah, and, and just... I assumed when I heard worms, I was picturing larger size. That we went to the lab yesterday, looked at the microscope. I was like, oh, no, no, these aren't, uh, these aren't what kind of scale? Yeah, so you certainly do get much bigger. Uh, but the ones we saw the other day were microscopic. They were less than a millimeter. But those ones were hookworms. They'll grow up to a centimeter long. And mine are similar, sort of that half an inch uh, for American listeners. That's about that size. But you certainly do get uh, bigger worms. Ascaris is a fun one that's uh, 30 centimeters long, half a centimeter wide. So fun. Ha ha have a hot, uh, hot curry and it'll come out your nose. Um, <laughs> nice. But uh, tapeworm's the classic one that uh, it can get up to 10 meters long in your guts. If you're lucky. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, and that's the one that keeps you slim, right? Uh, that's the one that uh, back in the 1920s you could buy fat pi- anti-fat pills that were tapeworm eggs, but it doesn't really keep you slim. It just takes away your nutrients, so it's really bad for you. But they thought it did, for at least for a little while. God, you have to ruin everything with science. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can't get any slimmer. I know. <laughs> uh, so can you, uh, before we move on to Claudia's stuff, I'd love to... Can you, can you tell us... You told us this yesterday in the lab, because this, this fascinated me, the ridiculously complicated way... The, the worm gets from the skin into the gut. Yeah, so the worms have all sorts of weird and wonderful ways to get in you. My, my one's a food-borne uh, worm, which is very easy. You eat it, it crawls into, it uh, basically goes through your system, activates in your guts and crawls up into your liver. But hookworm, the little worms that we saw yesterday, uh, they'll be sitting, sitting around on a bit of grass and uh, then you'll walk by them. Your heat and your CO2 will activate them and they'll uh, attach onto your skin. They'll actually burrow through your skin. Uh, at this stage, they're microscopic, so you won't even feel it. You might even scratch a bit and that can help them get through. Then they'll get into your blood system. They'll travel all the way up to your lungs, burst out. Uh, this will cause a bit of a coughing reaction from you. So that little cough clearing your throat, that might be you coughing up a hookworm. Then you swallow down into your guts and then it'll live there for a decade or so. So now everyone's nicely paranoid about <laughs> that minor leggage and or cough that you had last week. Uh, I, I want to talk... Okay, uh, Claudia, you... Um, I don't know if you are the first person to say the, word, the phrase rectal bleeding on our show. It may have... Uh... <laughs> Jesse might have been, but who knows? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, for that long-time front, listeners I'd... of the show, we have uh, one of our original hosts had, had for a while what he thought was going to be ulcer- ulcerative colitis or Crohn's. Yeah, turned out to be worse than that, but um, we've had our f- fair share of colorectal issues on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. uh, we, we have. Uh, yeah, we have. So, so hang on, how did you find the, what made you guys go to sunflowers? Was that just because you already knew that it had these peptides or like what? Yeah, so there are previous studies that shown that there are peptides in different type of plants and flowers. So then, um, yeah, we knew about this one, but the other peptide is different Totally different peptide that doesn't come from sunflower. So we know that this peptide is very stable, so we just try to make it stronger. And then we should, like, playing around if it works or not. To, then we have to do all these analyses and then see the molecular. So what, what, does, what, what, do the regular, what do the peptides do anyway in the body? Like, how does it work? Or do you know, do you know what it does? Yeah, that will depend on the structure of the molecular. So then you have your peptide, and then when it goes inside the body, you know, like, they're made up of this... Uh, amino acid, so they're okay. small molecule, right. what it makes, the peptide. So then one of those may might bind to something else in your body, to another protein, for example. Oh, yeah, like <laughs> this. Okay. So well, then, for example... Oh, no, we're an audio podcast, so that's... <laughs> so then, <laughs> so then we have this, for example, this circular peptide. Okay. So then one of these, it might be like... Uh, <laughs> You can't hear it. Yeah, I don't know if you heard that. Uh, but that then, was... for example, you open your peptide. Okay, that was then... the sound of a little... So we've got a ring, like a m- ring of molecules looking like a ring of like toy molecules in a lab. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the real molecules are much smaller than this. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> and then... But they do still make that sound when you pop them apart. Yes, exactly. Okay, cool. Same sound. So then when, you, when this part is open, this can connect to anything in your body okay. that it will attract it. So then it will make differences in the other structure of the other um, protein or whatever it's binding to. And then you will have like, other things that are happening at the same time. So these will activate these and they will activate these. So it's just like a cascade. And how far... Sorry, Annie, you're about to ask a question. Oh, no, no, no. I was just, it reminded me of uh, 
the mosquitoes, but I want to stay on <laughs> the peptides for a bit. So. Okay, all right. Well, let's get. We'll talk about mosquitoes <laughs> in a second. But yeah. So how far how far through is this research? Like where? Yeah. So we have lots of research at the moment with different things. So we first study all the structure and see how resistant and stronger are because uh -huh. we can't use something that it will break straight away. So then you have to go for the base part, and then you start going into what it's doing and then how is it doing it. Then you can like make it perfect to make it a medicine or drug or pill or whatever. Yeah, but you need to like go like lots of little steps, lots. <laughs> and did you say this was your PhD research? Yes. Okay. So I work half of my PhD in that and half of my PhD in um, parasites too. And now, presumably, you've got doctor before your name, so presumably that PhD went well. So uh, <laughs> what, are you re what are you doing now? Are you still researching the same field, or have you moved on to other yeah, stuff? Yeah, no, I'm working in uh, the same, but with more parasites, so peptide from parasites. Okay. So hookworms. Oh, okay. Yes. That so, were the ones you saw yesterday, the yes. little ones that have that long travel cycle to get in you. So, yeah, we all work with parasite and all those nice things. Uh, so whenever we have actual science experts on the show, we like to find out how they got into the field that they're in. So what, what was your childhood like? How did you end up wanting to pursue this as a, as oh, a profession? Me? Yeah. yeah and, oh, well, and also, how much of it did you do over there, and how much of it did you do over here? Like over there in, like in, in so Chile? Yeah, did you do your first science training there? Yeah, so I did chemistry okay. in Chile. So then my parents are scientists too. I mean, like, so... Oh, so you Very grew up in it, your legacy. Yeah. What kind of scientists are they? So my dad is engineer and my mom is chemist. Okay. So then, um, then I started yeah, growing up with that all my life. So then my dad also is, um, uh, I forgot the word, but he um, uh, works in astronomy. So then it's like a mix in between physics and well, like my mom chemistry. So okay. yeah, all my life. And then I did chemistry in Chile. And then I uh, came here and I did my PhD in biochemistry. So yep. And my life. how do you compare the deadliness of the wildlife in Chile to that of oh, Australia? We have absolutely nothing that can kill you. <laughs> really? Yeah, probably just people. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, like nothing. <laughs> yeah, but no, it, like here, it's just, uh, especially I, I think if I would have gone, I don't know, like Sydney or something like that, wouldn't be that terrible. But here in Cannes, you need to learn how to survive. <laughs> yeah, so my, I, I was two weeks in Cannes when I arrived, and my first encounter with animal were a taipan so like the, sorry, what? a taipan a taipan like snake. a oh, snake oh, oh, okay. you know top 10 deadliest in oh, the world yeah. one of them you know not familiar but <laughs> yeah so I was with my that. parents low they are there and then they were like i was like oh yeah snake but they were like no this is taipan i was like <laughs> okay it was a taipan and then they were like just run so then i started running towards the snake because I didn't even know I was like <laughs> running and then they were like to the other side so, so then like I was running it's a miracle you're alive <laughs> yeah thanks to them I'm surviving yeah but is yeah that, is that the same species yesterday we were walking back to the car and somebody who was working on campus said that there was just one dangling at head level recently that was the one oh, yeah, great. yeah. That's excellent yeah. yeah you always want to have one Right near the most uh, yeah. unfixable this, part of your... It's just one of the cleaners that we, uh, like, that we passed on the way out of the lab yesterday. And he also went, oh, yeah, I also removed a brown snake from behind the staircase the other day, which is another one of the top <laughs> ten deadliest uh, yes. snakes. Yeah, we had yeah. one of those the other day in the lab. Yep. We have very little like this in the U.S., except for Florida, which is Australia Junior. <laughs> I don't know if you guys know about the U.S., but Florida, you know, gators and palmetto bugs, but, like, nothing compared to... The jellyfish that makes you want to commit suicide. <laughs> yeah, hours. yeah just in case it me. didn't finish you off itself. It's just like <laughs> leaves you to, ah, they'll, 
they'll top themselves, <laughs> and then we can just nab them afterwards. Yeah, and I was hoping to get some surfing in at, at any of the stops on this tour, and then I found out, oh, no, no one goes in the ocean here without something covering every inch of their body. And even in the taking off of the wetsuit or the lycra, if you so much as just swipe a finger, like someone who was working in, in the lab accidentally had, I guess it wasn't the jellyfish that, no, it was the jellyfish that makes you suicidal but doesn't kill you, right? Yep. And you don't find out for 20 minutes that it happened. So Livia over there who showed us around the yeah. lab yesterday who's nodding. Uh, but yeah. And you yeah. have, there, there's video of documentation of this person's ordeal somewhere? Absolutely. That's so cruel. Yep. Yeah, where can <laughs> listeners find that? Hang on, I'm running over <laughs> with a mic. It's a lip. <laughs> um, we have a lab YouTube channel called The Nature of Science, and there's um, footage of the, him on there vomiting because of the pain he's going through. It's pretty good. We'll, we'll link to that in the show notes over at probably science. And that's your, bo- your, your supervisor slash boss of the lab, kind of. All right, cool. And that's also it's... been in Discovery Channel documentaries, him there twitching on a bed. It's, uh, it's amazing footage. It really is. <laughs> How do any of you do it? When you work at... I don't know how many uh, of our scientists guests in the past have been in a situation where your, fa- your failures are newsworthy. Any, like, workplace injury? Oh, no, that'll go in the documentary about <laughs> how terrifying and horrifying these things are. Mick, as well, who's the guy who showed us around the Mosquito Lab, who, like, he firstly just looks straight up like someone from a World War II jungle <laughs> film. Like, he's just, like, the guy who has been there forever and like meets the hero with a bottle of gin. <laughs> or he's, he is to mosquitoes what uh, Quint is to sharks in Jaws. I think yeah. Jaws fans out there, right? Yeah, yeah uh, and was telling us how, like, oh, yeah, yeah, they'll, uh, they'll feed them. Um, that, you know, mosquitoes need to eat, so, you know, we'll nurse them effectively. <laughs> like, they'll just, like, and you're like, what? And you're like, yeah, just shove a leg in there. In the arm. He, or just, not. he yeah. just feeds the mosquitoes with his own flesh. Yeah. It's so motherly. Yes. <laughs> they, send, they send email around, so if someone wants get, to go and to get the students mosquito. to get the twenty bucks to yeah. uh, get fed yeah. on. In the U.S., like students will donate blood plasma <laughs> for beer money, but here they'll donate their their discomfort and sit in this makeshift uh, Northern Australia house where there are hundreds of thousands of mosquitoes that will feed on them for twenty minutes to get twenty bucks or something. Right? I mean, yeah. I guess it's still giving them blood, isn't it? It's, it is. It's <laughs> yeah. a different kind of blood donation. It is. You know, I don't know if you get the same like cup of tea and biscuits afterwards. But <laughs> it, it is, frankly, horrifying. Uh, Mike, what was your, we've chatted to you, obviously, a bit over the last couple of days, but how, what was your start in science? How did you get into it? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, as I said in the, my, my leading, that I always realised I was deep into geek, always loved science stuff um, going up. And um, so I tried to do genetics mostly through university and, and I was was looking at um, mice and cancer um, for melanoma mutations to uh, work on one of the different skin pigmentation uh, genes because most of us have uh, various different mutations that lead to our hair and skin colour and eye colour. And um, so and I was all lined up to uh, find a job after that and then a few weeks before uh, our write-up started for writing our final thesis, as Andy described, I flew off my bike and used my face as a brake on the bitumen. Yeah. I don't recommend it and uh, broke my arm and smashed up my face. And um, the running joke has always been to get an extension for honours, you need to show your death certificate. So I didn't do that, but I turned up with a broken arm and a smashed face, and <laughs> that was pretty good. Um, I handed in two, two days before Christmas, because normally it's done in November, and I got extensions. At, um, not ideal. And uh, because it, all the jobs get given out in November, because that's when all grants come in, so everything had gone. So I went around and applied for everything I could get my hand on. 
and I got into this uh, job that was expressing these uh, viral proteins, and that uh, taught me a couple of different skills that I didn't know at the time, but they're very sought after and very uh, weird, expressing uh, proteins with yeast uh, with uh, insect cells. Um, a year later, the Parasite Lab was after someone who could do this, and uh, they, hit, they grabbed me, and uh, I've been with Parasites ever since 2001. So do you two work together in the lab, or do you, like, like, do you actually work with each other, or do you just sort of see each other across the lab and like, hey, how's Paris, how are your parasites doing? Yes and no. So we, the majority of the people work by themselves, but at the same time we work together in the same project, but okay. each person had their own activity. So then one, for example, I do peptide and I work with other type of model of disease. And then he does the other model of disease, but then he worked with peptide that we do. So then it's just like a mix in between us. Like, so we need us. <laughs> got it. How, so with your stuff, Mike, how much, like, do they know what this healing mechanism is? Or do they, how, do they have any idea what it is that sort of actually causes the liver to heal? Or? Yeah, that's what we're really after. So it's not just the liver, it'll heal anything. And, um, right. So uh, we do tests on regular wounds and that um, heals, heals them 40% uh, you know, faster, which is pretty impressive. Um, and it's actually this ancient growth factor that's found in all the way from bacteria all the way up to us, which is really weird to have something that's all across uh, most species. And it, um, it actually drives the cell growth through... Um, so everyone's probably heard of insulin that's uh, used for, to help diabetics and is critical for keeping out all our, uh, our glucose levels under control. It's also a critical part of cell replication, uh, but for normal uh, growth factors, whereas our growth factor is this weird and wonderful one that is able to do it without insulin. And... Um, so we're trying to work on... The short answer is no, we don't actually know how it works, and we're trying to do that right now. That's I mean, the hard part. you know, Great. results are results. So <laughs> at a certain point, if it heals the yeah. Way, it heals Yeah, for the sure. Yeah. yeah, how much pressure is there to have... Um, I mean, what are, I know the timelines are always very slow for drugs as far as getting them to the public, even once you've proven mm. their efficacy. So when you're just talking to someone in a bar describing your job, and they're like, oh, wait, so is that going to solve my uncle's uh, non-healing foot wound in the next year or two? Yeah, what do you say to it certainly wouldn't be anywhere near that, because um, we haven't even um, started uh, planning phase, tri phase one trials, which is like the initial safety trials you do. Um, but if we got the right money and the right funding, it could be uh, in five years or so. These things, uh, especially uh, things like this that have a desperate need, can go through reasonably. Uh, you know, so I understand five years doesn't sound quickly, but it is on that scale of things. Set up a GoFundMe for yeah. the podcast <laughs> if you guys can make this happen. Well, are you, uh, would you be allowed to test it on yourself? We were talking on the drive over about the ethics of self-testing. I think there's definitely new rules coming in and around. I think Australia has them too, but I'm not sure I want to because there are certainly are risks with testing anything. So these things, also, it wouldn't even be that useful to test on me um, because we'd be going after these chronic wounds that uh, just behave completely differently. Right. So we'd be after people with these different, uh, either venous leg ulcers or diabetic foot wounds. And also, is there a risk, because uh, I, uh, I did see some evidence uh, in the movie I Am Legend that this would cause vampires? <laughs> Who knows? Why not? Let's give it a go. That was one of my favorite documentaries. Yeah, we'll, 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 we'll add garlic. That'll uh, do it in a church. That'll help. Ah, you scientists have thought of everything. <laughs> There's no beating facts. So yeah, to our American listeners, um, we, like I said, this is my first time in Australia. I've been here now for less than 48 hours and less than 24 hours. My brain is still fried from jet lag. Um, this isn't what I expected at all. Uh, this looks very much like Hawaii up here in the north, and you guys are going through an insane 
rainy or monsoon season? Is it yeah, I guess pretty season? much, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, you have weather as well as animals that can kill people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, uh, we've, um, we've been lucky up here. We've only caught the edge of it. But um, basically this year we've actually had a couple of uh, zombie cyclones that uh, started uh, on one side of Queensland and gone across the top, weakened, died off, fired up again, come back. Um, and at the moment there's a giant uh, trough over Townsville causing all sorts of flooding and damage. So steer clear of there. Yeah, I heard it's actually a state of emergency there. Yeah, That's it's just crazy. Good luck to everyone there. Um, but it is beautiful country up here. Like I, uh, I highly recommend it to all of our listeners who are looking for somewhere. <laughs> yeah, just, Maybe don't pick the rainy season. But, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, June so is nice. The, 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 the winter, uh, winter, the middle of the year, June, is the uh, peak tourist season. I was going to say, uh, do, you, do you actually get anything even vaguely approaching winter? No, I, I mean, I more think of it as not hot. Right? And yeah. this is hot season, and then that's not hot. It's not really winter. Because we, we'll have um, t- uh, highs of 26 degrees. Mm. Um, it's dry and nice. Yeah. Quick math, what is that? In, uh, uh, 70, 75? Uh, 75 like maybe, sure. yeah, in Fahrenheit, yeah. Very reasonable. Like yeah, right now it's 100% humidity, which is why I'm in my performance shorts. I apologize <laughs> for my extreme casual look. I come from uh, a Michigan family that does not deal with heat. So the 100% humidity of mosquitoes fresh off the plane yesterday, that was quite... Uh, yeah, you've, got, you've definitely... Andy's gone for yacht casual. Yeah, audio podcast. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> He's gone with... What are those shoes even made of? These are all birds. This is not a sponsor, but if they want to sponsor the podcast, (laughs) the best travel shoe I've found so far. In fact, those mosquito rooms are the worst possible thing to take you if you're taking from heat because they're designed to be hot and humid and wet for the mosquitoes to thrive. Yeah, and my family, we're like filet mignon to to mosquitoes. I can't believe anybody would volunteer to be bitten, let alone that Mick said he doesn't even get reactions now. He just puts his arm in the bug dorm, which is what the actual brand name of the device is. Gets a shit ton of bites on it, and then he doesn't get welts from it. I didn't know that was a, a thing. I missed could... that it was called the bug dorm. Yeah, yeah. it's <laughs> fun, isn't it? it. <laughs> do they spend their whole lifetime in there, or do they just live there for the first year and then they move in with friends? <laughs> <laughs> Those bug harries are real hard, <laughs> hard asses sometimes. Well, bug that doesn't party. happen to me. I get still reaction. I have been seven years here, but. Yeah, I don't know how you would get used to it. I guess it's just a genetic thing. Some people Pro- most likely, yeah. 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 I was born for it. <laughs> I don't feed them. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know whether he did. He, did he say that he never ever got reactions, even when he was young, or whether he just yeah? Oh. Is he here? No, he's not here. Oh, okay. uh, but no, he's too busy feeding the mosquitoes. Like, <laughs> yeah. Would be here amongst amongst humans in an air conditioned room <laughs> where there's no for limited risk of instant death. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's, that still absolutely blew my mind. That I don't know why. I guess they have to go somewhere. And he also was involved in designing many of the traps that people now use. I guess that's the other thing. When you actually raise mosquitoes, you get a really good idea of what they're into. I guess they love high contrast. So there was like a black and white combination device that they're attracted to and then just a fan sucking them in. And that works pretty well. Yeah, mosquitoes are stupid. <laughs> but yeah, you guys have effectively, I don't want to say cured dengue fever, but if you can introduce these modified mosquitoes that have this, was it Wolbachia? Wolbachia. It's a bacteria? Yeah. And if you can get a population to have enough males and females with that, then dengue will just... Yeah, so it's it's more um, blocking it from coming in. So um, we're not a country that's endemic. That means that it's not here all the time. Mm -hmm. It's only a tourist bringing it in every so often. And uh, ever since I've done the Wolbachia mosquito releases, I haven't had any uh, transmission. So that's that means that somebody comes in, gets bitten, it goes to somebody else. Yeah. How does a tourist bring in dengue? Um, well, because it, ta- 
takes a couple a week or so for symptoms to really appear. Oh, so you have it in your system, and then a mosquito bites you, and then goes to someone else. Yeah. And then, especially because they'll come in, they're feeling you know a little bit fluey, maybe you know not overly bad, and they're hang, hanging out and getting bitten. Again, like that documentary outbreak that I saw <laughs> yeah. with Dustin Hoffman. Yeah. They are very. If you've never travelled to Australia, they are very strict on the way in about anything you bring in. Both, uh, like, any food, any wood products, any mud on your shoes. Mud on your shoes was a surprise yeah. to me, yeah, mm. in, the, in the warning video on the plane. Any, uh, um, and they do say, I guess one of the things they say is, like, if you're feeling at all ill, report it to... Mm. Yeah. You get nervous even if you don't have anything. It's I, like... <laughs> yeah, I was, I was, you just sort of weirdly go, like... Yeah, okay, I'm, I'm not worried about having drugs on me or guns or anything. I'm right. just like, if I have a grape, then I know I'm in real shit right now. It's like, I know I should be good. All I have is this duffel bag full of cane toads. That's <laughs> the problem. And they already have them here, so we're fine. Yeah, you guys are good on cane toads. You can't get double cane toad in. <laughs> where, where is it the cane toads actually live? In or everywhere. It's just everywhere? Everywhere, yeah. They're just everywhere. Yeah, we, yeah. Co- we covered that on, on past episodes, but I'd forgotten exactly what the problem was. And then Mike explained it this morning. I'm like, that is the most convoluted problem, and then attempt to solve the problem, and then attempt to solve the problem recreated by the attempt. Yeah. That basically, yeah. cane toads are really good at surviving, and they eat everything, and, and eat, most things that try to eat them die. So it's yeah. a, a real problem. So the other day, they found these snakes that they were trying to eat that, but then they die because of poison. Yeah, we've talked about the, the slightly poisoned cane toad sausage that's been dropped all over the country to yeah. teach animals not to eat cane toads by just making them sick and not killing them. Yeah. Which, is, which is like the sort of cane toad animal version of your dad making you smoke all the cigarettes. <laughs> that's exactly you it. The shed. Yeah. Right, you are eating all of these cane toads until you learn. So, so yeah, sugarcane here is a big crop, like in, yeah. like in Hawaii, and there was a different animal that was destroying that crop, so cane toads were introduced to battle those ineffectively. Yeah, but and the only thing the cane toads don't actually eat is the... The, the breeding cane, uh, cane beetle, I think it's called, yeah. And uh, so, because they mostly live on the top of the cane stalks and breed on the top and then fall down to pretty much die and then they can get eaten, which it's, well, too late. So they can't do anything. Mm. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Who, who, who actually brought them over? Whose idea was this? It was actually some scientists uh, a bit south of Cairns, I think. It's um, kind of embarrassing for uh, <laughs> scientists overall, but uh, we're much better at planning that stuff now, hopefully. This was not a Yahoo serious. <laughs> I don't know if uh, our listeners... See, I have no idea how ubiquitous knowledge of Yahoo serious is in this country, but as a child of the 80s, how many people have seen a Yahoo serious movie in the audience tonight? Oh, my God, only two hands. I thought this... You I, thought it was Australia. Young Einstein was Australia's national film. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I downloaded two Yahoo. I should say both Yahoo series movies <laughs> to watch on the flight over here. I fell asleep. So I still need to do my Australian research. Um, but uh, yeah, that was it. Was like Crocodile Dundee and Young Einstein. That was what every child of the '80s knew of Australia. And I still haven't even seen one of those movies. So. <laughs> Someday. Have you seen all of the Crocodile? I've seen no way. Crocodile Dundee two back to the. Well, I guess the first one is in. He's in New York and he's like fish out yeah. of water in New York. So the second one must be back here, right? Oh, geez, I forgot I the plot know. lines of all the Crocodile Dundees. God, this is kind of shameful. <sighs> uh, we, uh, anyone remember? We have we have listeners who write in to correct us on things. So uh, <laughs> listen, if we have any listeners who are experts in the Crocodile Dundee movies, 
if any of the Hogan family, oh, Paul, not Hulk, are in the audience tonight, um, please speak now. I'll forever hold your knives. That's not a knife. That's the first one. It's one demerit. I've done one kind of Aussie accent on this trip so far. You're allowed that's not a knife. Okay. That's good. Okay, yeah. that's fine. Yeah. Uh, okay, so, so, Claudia, what do you do to actually... So, where, where in a sunflower even are peptides? Like, what do you do? How does it work? Sorry, what was Where in a sunflower are The pep- seeds. Okay. So, yeah, like, there are different types. The sunflower have it in the seed. There are other ones. For example, there is um, this plant that you make tea, and then it helps for women for pregnancy just to have the babies faster. Okay. So then that tea has this peptide, too. So then it's um, a cyclic peptide. And then they are in different type of, uh, depending on the flower uh, or the seed, in this case, the peptide. So they are, some of them they are bigger, some of them are smaller, but the majority are, are circular. And then do you know what the mechanism is with that when it comes to helping things like celiac or...? No, it's just depending on where, like depending on the peptide, depending on the, what these little things, that amino acids are, yeah. is what they're going to do, be doing. So it will change depending on the structure. So then, I, yeah, I don't so, know what it could be. So what doing. is the process then that you go through to try and find out like what peptides are, what, are so, right for what thing? Mm, for example, the first thing you have like the same that me, we have things that might have more than one uh, compound. So in this case, I don't know, the parasites have lots of proteins and peptides and blah, blah, blah. Uh-huh. So then you have to start first trying to see what they are. So you can have thousand or million, whatever, and then just trial. Like this will be for this, this will be for that. But then you have to try lots of them to see one that it works for something, and then start setting that one into the different pieces, and then just go for that. And do you initially test it on healthy people and see how they respond, or do you just go straight to testing it on people who already have diseases and try and? Yeah, we don't go with people, <laughs> not okay. straight away. So then you go first with a um, laboratory model. It could be uh, animal model or to cell lane things. And then you start analyzing from there. And then when you are sure, very sure that it's working, then you start with people. Never okay. go with people. <laughs> and then do you start working with healthy people or do you start working with people who are already like, okay, you might need this treatment? No, you, you, like the same that Mick. You can go with healthy people because you, your body has to be producing the disease. So okay. if you go with healthy people, you don't know if it's doing something or not. Right. So then when your body's doing it, then you can see, oh, yeah, it's decreasing this or this is going up. And then, yeah, starting different levels. So what kind of timeline are you guys talking about for potentially? <sighs> That's a long one. <laughs> yeah, depending, for example, in my PhD, just to know that it's doing something, all this peptide took like four or five years. So then from there, just lab thing. So right. then from that to... People. Five to ten years is always a good answer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah, it's really hard to know. Yeah, it just yeah, it will depend on how many things do you have. For example, the parasite. We have so many that we don't know what could be like doing something. So then you have to study one by one until you get a good result. It's yeah. such a foreign thing, I think, to well I, I shouldn't speak for you, Matt, but like we both come from pretty like physics and math sort of theoretical sciencey backgrounds and the life sciences are just constantly a mystery to me because it, it does sound like it's sort of you have to just throw everything against the wall and see what sticks and then just burrow down into that until you find something that works as opposed to being able to say 
we can just look at some theory, run some equations, and then build a thing. Like, no, you have to just kind of here are all the options. Let's test them all and just see what's effective. Is that, it's not, not disparaging your field either to say that. It's just, is yeah, that kind of the... Sort of. And then you have these old, all these programs that help you too. So, for example, if you know exactly the structure of something, the, what all the little molecules that are making it, then you can put it in programs and then you might have some idea that what they could be doing. Okay. And then you start like rolling out things that probably won't work. So it's not just go with everything. It's not just everything, okay. Yeah. But yeah, biology is so complicated and we're finding more and more that um, uh, when you find one compound that treats, uh, that does X, it might even be doing just a little bit of other things that you, until you test it in a whole, whole uh, body, you won't, you won't find right, out. Right. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a hard part. For example, uh, with mine, sorry, uh, we started with cancer and then we went to inflammatory bowel because it's the same, mm. to start doing different things. So you are like, oh, maybe it's not that good for this, but probably it's good for this. And you said you could, could you isolate the damaged cells in someone with ulcerative colitis or Crohn's and just analyze those in a Petri dish, or does it always have to be in a full system of an animal or human that you're testing it? Or? Oh, so what we do, we know, for example, we don't know exactly all the cells, we don't have the cells, but what we know is just levels in your body so, for example, immune response. So then you have this cytokine in this, blah, 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 that when you are sick at this high and the other one at this low, so you can make that and then you make them sick and then you start playing just with that, that immune response. So, so it has to be in a full working system of some organism. It can't be isolated completely. A, and a, a little bit. So those cells we showed you yesterday, that cells are grown in culture. You have various liquid media that you can grow them up. Uh, when you know what you're looking for, you can have particular immune system cells. They can treat it with X, Y, Z and look for these various hormone changes or cytokines. Mm -hmm. uh, that, um, and so sometimes, yes, but sometimes it's a lot of it's, you've got to work out something that's working, then you've got to find the cell system to, to be able to screen for that. Yeah. But uh, yeah, you always try and use the cell systems first because they're a lot cheaper and easier. Yeah, uh, but um, a lot of the time, a whole animal is uh, unfortunately required. Yeah. Although, speaking of cheap, you did show us something yesterday that was uh, $900 per slide in your lab. What was that again? Uh, that was one of the uh, uh, protein arrays. So this is uh, basically like a little microscope slide, and it's got 9,000 different proteins uh, dotted on it in a microscopic scale. And that allows us to do uh, things that we, you know, we put Claudia's protein or my uh, protein on it and uh, see which human uh, proteins it's interacting with. So that's another way that we can potentially avoid um, extensive animal work by finding the direct mechanisms and uh, help us understand how it's doing what it's doing. Mm. So you're saying like that thing's 9,000 but it's still cheaper than a student. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you, we, also our listeners, because it's, again, because they don't have the video as well, um, every time you mention parasites you've been pointing to these flags over here, <laughs> yes. we've got these sort of banners hanging off the side <laughs> of the building. Because it's easier for the people here to see which it. Is, uh, which are which have some of the sponsors on it, but also what are the parasites that are hanging off there? Oh, okay, so we've got a tick, I think, in green on the right there, and then uh, moving over, there's a hookworm, so that's the one you saw yesterday, and that's got that big, terrifying uh, worm mouth. I always think of it as like the worms, the sandworms from June, that's a big, oh, yeah. uh, big mouth spidey thing, and I can't actually see the other ones, but they're probably something just as horrifying. Uh, someone's shouting out, because yeah, we've got the light in our eyes and that they're not uh, lit. What, what are the last two? Head lice, very good. Head lice. Who doesn't love head lice? <laughs>
Is there a, a, a headline scientifically interesting to you? Is there stuff that you can study about them? There's certainly, I haven't done any work on them, but there's certainly a lot of stuff they're playing with, but probably mostly trying to get rid of them. Damn it. <laughs> yeah, we were talking to Mick yesterday about mosquitoes, and it's come up on the podcast. Like, you always assume that there would be unintended consequences if you eradicate any species entirely, and we asked him what his take on getting rid of all mosquitoes would be, and he was like, yeah, it'd be no problem to me. <laughs> Well, so, so there's a bit That's of... two demerits. I'm sorry, it's kind of an Australian accent. <laughs> but a bit of nuance in that. So he was talking about just getting rid of that particular type, which is malaria okay. and dengue. Um, I mean, it's un- understandable. But uh, so most of the time, there's a whole range of different species. So your um, a bird or whatever other uh, predator isn't going to be taking just one species of mosquito usually. Mm-hmm. So you could take out the, the particular types of species that are problematic for malaria and dengue and, other, and Zika and, and other uh, problems. And he said, so those, there, sorry, what did you say, Annie? If there was a species that only relied on those, it was probably pretty weak anyway. In his words, not. That, that was, that was the, the fun way to describe it, yeah. So are they the same? Is it the same species of mosquito that's responsible for all three of those diseases? There's a couple of different species, but yeah, generally they tend to be the same species. What a dick. Yeah. <laughs> Well, mosquitoes are the number one killer in the world. They, they are the, uh, the animal that kills the most people. Let's uh, remember that from little useful trivia questions. Yeah. Isn't, uh, like, it's way ahead of any of... Uh, but it's like an or- one or two orders of magnitude ahead of anything that is, no, that is like visually yeah. deadly. It's just not as cool as dying by yeah. tiger or something. Right. But, right. Uh, I know like, of the big things that eat you. Isn't the hippo right up there as well? Yeah, so it's not so much eating, it's more the hippo actually kills more people in Africa than all the other big cats combined, but that's more because A, people don't think they're scary, and they're very territorial, and they'll come up and just uh, pound into you. But they're not trying to digest you. Right? No. They're just, yeah, okay. Not that it makes it better. I guess it's, <laughs> dead, dead. Yeah. it's probably better to be at least used if right. you're going to get killed by something. <laughs> just finish me. Yeah, I think I'd rather be, if I, I mean, I, you know, if I had to choose, I'd rather be eaten by something that was getting something out of it rather than just it was yeah. a dick. Just because I thought I was in its space. <laughs> I want to think that I'm both a contributor to society and delicious. Is yeah. That cocky of me? To... <laughs> like, if I was murdered by a, a man, I would rather it was for food <laughs> than just because I was in his pub and he didn't like look at me. Yeah, we talked about other things near here that will kill you, and I, I assumed it was these smaller things we saw in jars. And... Um, no, I guess crocodiles actually are a terrifying, risky thing here. It's not just... Yeah, we've actually ha- had a few uh, uh, deaths from them uh, over the last uh, couple of years. Mm. I guess we shouldn't make light of that. It's, I assumed it was like sharks, where it's like you're more likely to be struck by lightning ten times than have... But uh, no, stay, stay clear of crocodiles and box jellyfish. Well, aren't crocodiles actively, like, dicks as well, in that they will... They will track your behavior and movement. Oh, yeah. There's, uh, we've got lots of our lab people who've walked along the do- uh, beach, especially with a little dog, and had a crocodile just uh, basically stalk them in the water. Yeah, so That's I, a fun, fun little story for you. I used to work in, um, here in Cairns in the sugar uh, mill. So we used to have sample, take sample from the water, and then they had the river full of sign for crocodile. So I used to go with someone else to pick up the sample, and then it used to be with... Um, with a torch, so we used to go different hour, different day. So they, the only thing that they say to me, if you see anything red, to run. <laughs> I was like, okay. Anything because the, red. Le, the eyes, we torch, they get red because we used to go at night to oh. take all the samples. So they could see it because during the day, I think for them, it's harder so it, to see So them. it's easier to spot them in the dark. 
That's what they say. <laughs> oh, I should point out for our American listeners, by torch you mean flashlight, because yeah. oh, yes. to an American that just means like a sort of flaming torch. Like. <laughs> <laughs> That's very, yeah, certainly the wild Australian vibe. Which, which is one that didn't even occur to me until my, my friend Nick, who used to be married to an American, mentioned that, that were, to his uh, American <laughs> in-laws... He just mentioned that being one of his favorite Christmas presents as a kid. <laughs> I got a torch, and then the Americans were all like, <laughs> like a burning torch. The, yeah, How you do know, you wrap that? In, in case British, there are any monsters that yeah. you needed to, beasts. Most British children are angry villagers. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. Looking to storm castles. You get the pitch, pitchfork next year. So. Um, it sounds like at least seven. Pitchfork is seven enough. Yeah, so you vary, you vary with your. So if you're going somewhere where there are crocodiles, you have to consistently vary Date, time and day and everything so that they don't yeah. go, okay, that's, that's the routine. I wonder if they have like a like something. Yeah, calendar. <laughs> oh, it came today. Oh, there's a Chilean scientist who uh, <laughs> is here at 3 p.m. every day with a little vial. <laughs> Putting her hand inside Collecting the water. sugar water. <laughs> uh, Aren't there some rules of thumb about colors, like brightly colored things usually meaning stay away? Is that a safe rule of thumb or something I heard somewhere? on a different podcast that's less qualified than ours. Yeah, I'm not really sure. I mean, certainly a lot of the venomous uh, snakes and whatnot. Uh, maybe our edgearium edu- uh, girls might be able to help with that one. Bright, do, are bright colors usually a signifier to steer clear of something? Hang on, sorry, I'm that's coming right. over with the microphone again. <laughs> it's the voice sorry, of I Olivia Rowley again, who showed us all the jellyfish yesterday. There's a type of animal behavior called apersomatism, which means that bright colors normally mean danger, and some animals have learned to mimic the colorations of other animals to stop themselves getting eaten, even though they're not actually poisonous themselves. Oh. Well, that's right, because there are some snakes that have like the same three colors, but in different orders, and one's poisonous mm. and one isn't, right? It's some... There's one, I think it's red next to yellow, kills a fellow. Ah. <laughs> Yeah. I, I'm always like if you're ever in a situation where you're having to remember a rhyme to know whether you're, you're <laughs> whether in immediate you mortal danger. Oh god, okay. Red next to yellow, yellow next to yellow next to red, you're already dead. I don't know. Uh, wait, blue by green. Green by, what? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Oh, Saying that can people know very well colors. Out your run. For me, they are all snakes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think I think run for. Although then you're like, which ones? Do, which ones do you run? And which ones do you play dead? And which, <laughs> which ones, ones do you, you just to do serpentine zigzag? <laughs> yeah, make yourself big. The crocodiles you meant to run in a zigzag because they're not good at turning corners and. Right. A shark, you punch in the nose to show that you're tough or something, or that's yeah. not real? No. Well, 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 that's what our surfers do, yeah. Do they really? Uh, Mick Fanning did during a surfing competition. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> Uh, what else? Yeah, so the play dead thing with, with bears is, I forgot, that's a, according to Eugene Merman, I'm quoting someone's joke, I'm not claiming it's mine. He's like, I think that's a rumor started by bears. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, so many things that could kill you that we saw at the Edu Aquarium again yesterday because that's the, the shelf of death, which has been teased many times in the podcast. You finally showed this three shelf tier with all these things in jars that can kill you different ways. And then nearby there were these aquariums, and in one of them was a clownfish. And I was like, wait, is Nemo a secret dick? <laughs> but you guys also just have some cool fish that kids want to see. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly that. Like, that's things to look pretty, yeah. Yeah. Which is very nice of you to combine the uh, 10 second death, the 48 hours of pain. Oh, yeah, there's Nemo. It's one of the good ones. Yeah, and then, and then a crocodile, but like a little one. So they're like, ah, it'll only take a finger off. <laughs> it was a very cute croc we saw yesterday. I reckon I could take it. <laughs> 
So if visitors are in the area, can anybody just stop by and knock on a door and see that Eduquarium? Oh no, we got the, a special. The, there's generally th- there's okay. things like open days and particular yeah. times uh, that they'll have, uh, so you can probably check their website that'll uh, have more information. I think it's twice per year that they open the university. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, you can come and feed the mosquito if you want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if anyone wants to get bit by mosquitoes on vacation, <laughs> we know just the spot for it. And you can, you can make a profit. So you, you both learn and earn. There you go. That, that rhymes. Yeah. Mark that down. What are you learning when you're getting bitten by mosquitoes? <laughs> <laughs> Not get bitten by mosquitoes. I don't. <laughs> mosquitoes suck. Hey. That really was not intentional. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, that was just, that was deserved all the groans. Very upsetting that that voice came out in that order. <laughs> very so up. What else should we be on the lookout for? Not that you guys need to be our guides for the rest of this tour, but we're we're going to be hitting up, I think, four more cities: um, Perth, Brisbane, Melbourne, and Sydney. If all goes to plan, that's the plan. Uh, what should we steer clear of as far as things that will kill us? And any other general? Australia tips. I mean, generally follow uh, follow warning signs. That that's okay. where most of the t- problems go, especially with the crocodiles. That people don't obey the warning signs, and they're there. They're telling you they're there. Um, Sydney's known for having browns and king brown snakes, but again, in the city, you, you're not going to run into them. But that's the thing. I've been to Sydney several times and never really seen anything that yeah. looks. You can yeah. get funnel webs in suburbia, but again, still, you've got to be at out a little bit with a bit of a yard and stuff. Okay. Final words also, you know, they're, they're the deadly, uh, our deadly version of Black Widows. They're the deadliest spider in the world as well. Mm. Well, I, let's, let's debunk a few more venom-related things because I've always heard you get bitten by a jellyfish and then what do you do? Well, I, I know of two possible things, <laughs> okay. neither of which is correct, apparently. Right. So, vinegar or nature's vinegar. Sure, nature's vinegar. <laughs> um, but it turns out those activate... So sometimes, again, we were very jet-lagged when we were getting this talk yesterday, Olivia, so I'll try to paraphrase. If I'm wrong, we'll throw you a mic. But um, the venom sacs inside you can actually get reopened by oh. vinegar and make your pain much worse. So oh, oh, is squeeze, that sort of right? Squeeze. Squeeze. Okay. So really hot water is the actual solution, as hot as you can possibly bear without, without burning your skin off. CPR first. CPR first. Make sure someone's breathing. And then super, And then put them in a really hot bath <laughs> while giving them CPR. And then uh, we also heard about the mechanism where the stonefish, which was in the top five, I think, or up there for pain, right? You step on that, it's got basically a built-in hypodermic needle where it breaks your skin, and then as you go farther down, you're pressurizing the sac that then pushes all the venom inside you. So we, we need to, if we're in Perth, when we're in Perth, we need to talk to past guest on the show, comedian Brendan Burns, who three days ago in Perth stepped on a stonefish. Oh, God. Wow, you can get first-hand uh, experience of the Yeah, and apparently the, like, the, the person on the, like, or the lifeguard or whatever just went, ah, yeah, it's a jellyfish or whatever, it's going to suck for a couple of days, you're fine. And then someone else went, no, you need to get to a hospital. And he Anyone got... in the audience gone through any of these bites we've talked about so far by a show of hands? Oh, this country's safe. Everyone's alive. <laughs> yeah. It's fine. It's all propaganda to keep tourists out. Is there like an anti-tourism board spreading all this? Saying that my mother-in-law, they're just there. Mm-hmm. Um, she sent this photo once that she was walking, went to see the horses, and then the snake bit her twice in the leg. 
And then I was like, oh my God, you're going to die. So I was like, I was talking with my father-in-law, just take it to the hospital and blah, blah, blah. And he was like, no, don't worry, just my venom, they won't do anything. And I was like, just, is he going to survive? I was just very paranoid, but they were fine. Because he knew the species of snake? Yes. And it was definitely fine? Yeah. Oh, okay. So because they knew. So it was a non-venomous species of snake? Yeah, we do have the occasional one of them. Right. So, if, but if you do get bitten by one, how about the um, urban legend? If it is that of just trying to suck the venom out with your mouth, is definitely that not because okay. uh, that means you might get uh, the venom assume, in you. Seems yeah. like that. Yeah, it's very logical. So, what, what, wash it off um, and uh, pressure bandage generally okay. is and uh, elevate it if you can. Keep calm to keep your heart rate down. Right. And go to emergency. Okay. Hang on, elevate the limb that's been bitten. Is that right, girl? Wait, it seems like the opposite is what you should yeah, do. Yeah, no, right? maybe keep it. Stay still. Stay, Stay still. still. Don't there we it. go. Got that one wrong. Because I, I, I collected, not collected, I guess I did, yeah, I collected snakes. I liked snakes as a kid, and I knew the safe ones that were, you know, native to Michigan and the environs. And so I would get bitten a lot by these ones that I knew weren't venomous because I was a dorky 10 year old who had books on it and stuff. And like one time my dad saw me getting bitten on the hand and then rushed into the house and started sucking on it and spitting in the sink. I'm like, Dad, it's a garter. Dad, it's a garter snake. I know my snakes, Dad. Stop spitting in the sink. It's fine. Stop sucking my hands. Yeah. yeah. Maybe it was just his thing. But. <laughs> I don't know. By show of hands, how many, uh, how many of your dad sucked on your hands as a kid? Like, uh, None again. Yeah. None again. Shocked. This is a much safer place than we think. That's the lesson to be learned here. Yeah, I think most places... Most places, even in this area, which definitely does have more of the scary things than many other parts of Australia, I think, still, unless you're actively in a lab in which it's contained. Uh, like, uh, they're around. I mean, yeah. as you said, there's several on campus that uh, are, have been around, but as long as you're sensible. Yeah, but he also said there was a huge python as well, and he, <laughs> that he described as beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> they are very gorgeous. And sometimes these deadly animals have surprise... I mean, I guess in the same way that the worm spit is digging into your liver, but also healing it. Was it the stonefish that might have a potent painkiller? Uh, cone snail. The cone snail, which is the one that definitely kills you, right? Yes. Like, people put these in their pockets, and because they're mollusks, they, like, you know, crawl up inside themselves. So you think it's just a shell. You put it in your pocket, you're out of the pub. Suddenly you keel over. Someone thinks you had too much to drink. But <laughs> the snail in your pocket stung you, and you are dead. And that's actually a story that has that's, happened. That's a real thing that happened, <laughs> right? But that same cone snail can somehow be modified to create a painkiller that if my jet lag brain remembers, 50 times stronger than morphine? 10 times. Just 10. Only 10. 10. Only 10 times stronger than morphine, but not addictive, so <laughs> what's even the point? Yeah. <laughs> and those are peptides. Those in are the peptides. Con- yeah, yeah. They do that. In the cell. Yeah, okay. they are peptides. So that could be the solution to... And how far out, Olivia, ballpark, might that be as a solution to everyone's pain problems? Five to 10 years? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, five to 10 years. Five to 10 years is always... Uh, so, do, do we know, uh, uh, either Olivia or Claudia, do, you, do they know the mechanism by which that works as a painkiller? Well, I, I think they do, but I'm not too sure well about the conditioning. I know that my supervisor worked with that, so I, that's why I know that they have peptides. They are very potent peptides, but I'm not too sure how the mechanism, but I'm pretty sure that they might have some studies. Am I, am I right in thinking, actually, that we, that we don't really know how many painkillers actually work, or is that bullshit? Am I... I think they have suspicions, but there's certainly a lot going, maybe a lot more going on than uh, some, some of the time they know. And the, these cone snail painkiller peptides, are they fun? <laughs> I wanted to ask the same thing. I'm glad you went there first. Yeah. 
Yeah, like, you know, does it give you a good vibe? <laughs> yeah, not sure. I, I haven't tried <laughs> They're going to be like sort of cone snail dens. <laughs> start in the east and spread west. <laughs> people lying reclining on red velvet couches and pillows. Just sticking snails in their arms. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Sure. It's not you addictive, got... guys. It's good for you. It's natural. That's my favorite bullshit. Thing. <laughs> it's natural. It's like so is arsenic. Yeah. <laughs> so is so many things. It's all the snakes and uh, crocodiles. Yeah, everything we've mentioned is natural. Good luck yeah. with all of that. Yeah. Yeah, that type hand that was dangling from a doorway at neck level. Is, <laughs> it, wasn't a, it wasn't a GMO snake. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, yeah, it was a pure, unadulterated, <laughs> organic snake. <laughs> but they also use the, the, the venom from um, spiders here for treatment cancer. Oh, so breast cancer, for example. What is the, or in what peptide. way? What is the treatment? Peptide too, from the. So they just they're peptide and protein, but they at least we are studying the peptide. So they are trying to use the peptide into cancer cell, so they just kill the the cancer cell. And, and another another one is uh, tumor paint that was developed from a um, scorpion toxin that basically preferentially uh, binds to cancer cells, in particular brain cancer cells, and so they can have a fluorescent tag on it so they can look when they're cutting the cancer out and then they can see if they've got it all. And, so they take uh, only that without taking the, the healthy cells. So, they, so they, the in, they attach a fluorescent dye to the, to the chemical from the scorpion venom, inject it into the body, it binds to the cancer cells, and then have to sort of, I presume, do, like, do surgery under a black light? Uh, it's not quite that, but it <laughs> certainly is, it is exciting. It, it gets hit with particular coloured lights and mm. uh, uh, you're able so to see it that way. So then you can see it. A little bit more techy than a black light <laughs> than a dance party. <laughs> no, in my head it's a pure black light and... <laughs> that works. Cold snail dance and black light surgery. <laughs> there we go. You got the music pumping. <laughs> it's a Burning Man <laughs> Well, I, I know, I know they do genuinely have music playing in operating theatres, and I'm sure, you know, there's like the sort of the jazz surgeon and the classical music surgeon, and there's probably the techno surgeon as well, who's like, this is the. <laughs> is that a thing you've heard that there actually is usually music playing? In, in... I don't know, usually, but I know it's, I know, I know it's mm. a thing. Oh, okay. We got we got listeners who are doctors and surgeons, or uh, my friend Helen, who's an anaesthetist, who listens to this. Helen, do you, is there music in the? In the operating theatre, write to us. And if so, who gets to choose it? <laughs> Whose pick is it? Yeah, well, how about for uh, those that we met with yesterday and for Claudia and Mike here, what's your music of choice when you're in the lab or in the field? Oh, I listen to Probably Science. Oh, of course. <laughs> who doesn't? There we go. Oh, God. It always both... I, I do love, but also it depresses me seriously when I find out that real scientists are listening to our nonsense <laughs> when they're doing real science, because I'm like, you are... We are distracting you and setting science back. <laughs> We're actively inhibiting the process of science. Depending if you have very long hour, you want something that make you just relax or sing, so then yeah. that will go faster. Any yeah. recommendations then? Um, You're allowed to plug a bit, <laughs> but I don't know there's no ASCAP limitations. But, but, but that is the thing about like we get to chat about the fun bit of science where there's results and findings and stuff, and you have to do the 
hours and hours of slowly pipetting something and then yeah, looking yeah. at something and then counting things. Well, Although, definitely you don't want Latin music because then you will start dancing and then it won't, yeah, it won't and, go very fast. And the sa <laughs> same idea. I love Metallica, but I can't concentrate if I'm yeah. listening to it. So it's uh, yeah, something relaxing with uh, yeah, not much going on. Uh, that's not heavy beats or anything. Yeah. And depending uh, where you are too. If you are inside the lab and there are too many people, probably you will be just with headphones. Someone in the back there saying ACDC. When you have good results. Do the, uh, Olivia, do the aquarium various creatures respond to loud music? They love it. They love it? Just imposing it on them. Yeah, you showed us a very shy, it was one of the multicolored things that'll bite your thumb off, am I right? The peacock mantis shrimp? Oh, that's the one with the ridiculously fast punch that we've talked about. They can break your thumb. And they broke through the glass separating parts of the aquarium, right? That's... <laughs> Not the territorial, these fucking dick animals. <laughs> Absolute assholes. Again, like, it doesn't want to feed on me, it just wants to punch me and break my thumb. <laughs> Saying that, now that I remember when our, we work with someone that he milked the spiders, so when he going to milk the spider, he put classic music. So it feels like it relaxes them. So it helps to have more venom like, coming out. He's courting. He's whining and dining the spiders. <laughs> yeah. And this is specifically milking their venom, not like milking their milk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that would be a lot harder. You need very tiny tweezers for yeah. that one. But that one, basically, they poke them to get them angry, and then the venom drips off their fangs, and then with a the pet, you very calmly suck off the very tiny amounts of venom. Yeah, you can but see them there in the lab, like with the classic music, and then, oh, yeah, they're just making spiders. But, but you said they have to get them the exact right amount of angry, because if they're too angry, the venom, was it sprays or... Well, if, if they're, they're too angry, they'll basically drip venom in their burrow, and you, so you need to get them enough that they come out to investigate you, but not so angry that they just sit there and, uh, mm. and drip. And I think they're different, different type of venom depending on how they feel too. So it might come something different. So then you want something like all the time the same thing. Well, that was something we, uh, we, we'd worked on with the scorpions and you guys had talked about previously, the uh, defensive and offensive uh, versions of scorpion venom that we showed that the scorpion is able to change the different versions. It can kill crickets with one venom and defend itself against mammals, mm. uh, mice, or other things that are going to eat it. And it can do change, uh, change the amount of venoms it makes, depending on whether you feed it live or dead crickets, or leave it alone, or poke it with a mm. taxidermy mouse. Yeah, so they change the molecule that are inside the venom. So you don't want to make them too angry, or not that angry. <laughs> Just, yeah, it's hard. And then do you sort of like have like a dead or life like mouse on a stick that you push towards the... <laughs> someone at the back saying yes, and I'm guessing that that is someone who actually works in one of these labs. Yeah. Frank a mouse is, a, is like a dead mouse on a stick that... All right, Wait, okay. Do you, that... do you have to do some puppetry to make to give it some life? You do. You give it a little shimmy. You give it like a little... A little move around. And yeah, this one Frankenmouse got uh, stabbed by hundreds and hundreds of scorpions as Aww. it uh, went through its uh, po po aggravating them. But again, you got used. Like, that's all you want. Yeah. That's right. To be put to good use. Yeah, I w I, again, I want to donate my body to science after I'm dead. And uh, if that means that some 
Queensland scientist is putting me on the end of a stick <laughs> and slowly pushing me towards some scorpions, then so be it. That's <laughs> our Frank and Matt over there. Yeah. <laughs> like he's he's the lab. Um, hey, uh, Claudia and uh, Michael, how, how can our listeners find out more about you and everything you do? Well, we've, uh, we've got our research, uh, researcher pages on uh, jcu.com.au and um, also if you Google our names, uh, you'll they'll probably uh, pull up some of our latest work. Mm, some paper that we have published too, if someone wants to cite us. <laughs> that, that, and there's usually media releases too that has it in a bit of a lay language that you can read about uh, what we've done. Sweet, and we've we got, we got to thank again, like a huge thank you to Inspiring Australia Yes, and uh, to the Australian Institute of Parasitology. Society of Parasitology. <laughs> the Australian <laughs> Institute of Tropical Health and si- Health and Medicine and the Australian yes. Society of Parasitology. Very good. Yes. Yeah, uh, l- listen, guys, this is the first time we've done anything in Australia uh, as the podcast, and, uh, and the fact that even in Cairns, we, so you guys came out, and we, we're very happy to be here, and thank you as well, the venue, and thank you, I know there's some volunteers who helped this thing. So can we please have a huge round of applause for everyone who's made this happen, or like... Uh, like uh, all of the venue and Michael and all of the volunteers and everyone at the university who th- showed us around, please thank you so much. Those guys, uh, yeah, they, thank you, we appreciate it. We really hugely appreciate it. And and thank you so much for thank you, Claudio. Thank you, Michael, for joining us on the stage. Thank you so much, both of you. That was awesome. Well, thank you for having us. It was uh, so much fun. But yeah, yeah listeners, thank you. Uh, live audience, thank you. And we'll see you at the bar. Uh, take care. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, mate. Take care.